Welcome, a listener, to another episode of Spam, 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 Humbug. This is episode 142 of the podcast. And the word appears in the title, chaos, and it's a pretty apt descriptor of our adherence to topic in this episode, because I think even more than has kind of become the norm, we really wander over a variety of subjects. Although it starts on topic enough, if uh, if we can call it that, with Harmony Dragon and Hellgraph Dragon discussing Harmony's history with the Ultima series and with gaming sort of more generally. Harmony has to step away though at about the time that I'm able to join the podcast. And that kind of is where things meander off course. Yeah, it was me. I'm the one who pulled everything off of a topic. And we cover everything such as Saskatoon berries and moonshine, which is actually legal to make in Canada with proper licensing, by the way. Um, talk about Canadian laws pertaining to alcohol and drugs. Safe drinking water comes up at some point, and Golden Flame actually joins the discussion right in the middle of a chat about the distinction between wastewater treatment and drinking water treatment. It's, like I say, it was just a weird sort of topical smorgasbord. We even talk about sports for a while. This becomes a sports podcast for a few minutes before the uh, topic shifts more in the direction that it should. We talk about board games and card games. And the development of Jean-Luc Picard as a character in Star Trek The Next Generation before uh, ending up with a few comments on scouting and what scouting programming may look like in the post-COVID reality. Of course, uh, the podcast is still hosted on Anchor.fm, newer, much more social podcast hosting platform, anchor.fm slash podcast or spam, 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 humbug.com. If you are listening to us in the Anchor app, you can, of course, like the podcast, like individual episodes, and we do encourage you to share episodes with your social media circles as well. You can also, of course, uh, support the podcast on Patreon. This episode of the podcast, as all episodes of the podcast, are brought to you by our Patreon backers. Patreon.com slash Ultima Codex if you would like to join that cohort. And thank you to everyone who supports us and the Ultima Codex by that means. And as always, a hearty thank you to our co-producers, Seth, Golden Flame, Chris, Dominic, Violation, Cranberry, Helgraf, Gronk, Pascal, and Thorwan. All right, let's get on with the show. My first actual uh, PC uh, Ultima was U7, and that was when I was in college. Well, to be fair, that's not all that uncommon. A lot of people came in at 7. A friend of mine had this collection of Origin games. Uh, it was uh, Wing Commander 2 without the ex- or Actually, no, it did have the expansions. Ultima 7 without the expansion, without Forge of Virtue. Mm-hmm. Had System Shock. No, it wasn't System Shock. Uh, yeah, it was System Shock and Shadow Dancer. Yeah, this, Shadow sounds like, this, this sounds like one of the compilation CDs that went out at one point. Yeah, it was a, it was a box uh, set of several different CDs. And, and rather than having the proper manuals that have the copy protection information in a book, it said, if it gives you this question, answer with this answer. Mm-hmm. It'd be great as long as you still have access to the book. I think it might have had them in PDF, That you know, back when PDF was still, you know, a new shiny thing. Mm. Sure, it just wasn't a text file? Like, 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 literally like a notepad file? No, because I remember the manuals when I read them actually having art. Mm. But they weren't physical. I And... That first night, 
I started up uh, a U7. Mm -hmm. And I learned the hard way. Make sure you put on swamp boots on everybody when you're going from intrinsic to pause. Hey, as long as you stayed like in the center of the road, you were all right. But yeah, if you wanted to wander around and poke at things, yeah, probably a good idea. I mean, I ended up playing and playing and playing. You know, on my dorm room, my PC I brought from home. I started after, you know, after dinner, you know, and didn't realize how long I'd been spending until the sun was coming up and... You heard the birds? Yeah. And yeah. my friends were saying I needed to get cleaned up and go to, go to breakfast before a chapel because I made the mistake of going to a private college. Yes. Well, I've had similar experiences, albeit not at a college. But the whole uh, losing track of time, the next thing you know, you're hearing the birds chirping in the morning. At the time, I thought it was amazing just how much interactivity the game had. Being able to take grain, turn it into flour to make dough to make bread. Mm -hmm. Even if it was just easier to cast conjure food. Well, sure, if you wanted to burn the reagents. <sighs> I was young and I wasn't thinking about economy at the time. Thinking, I was just thinking about how easy it was to get things. Right. I remember one of the first things I did was I screwed around with the Orb of the Moons, trying to figure out, oh, hey, where does this go? Where does that go? Because it said that where it sent you to was based on where you laid, or where you laid it down in relation to where you were standing. Hmm. That's certainly the case with a normal functional Orb of the Moons. Uh, uh, what with the Blackrock generators, I don't remember if that was still, you know, actually effective. There was a random chance you'd zap yourself. Just like if you cast a spell. Just like uh, Lord British randomly couldn't heal you properly. Randomly, yes. Where... I remember... It was strange that it was only certain mages that it was, you know, rendering completely bug nutty. Uh, Lord British qualified as one, but he was just having hard times casting magic, as were you. Lord British technically isn't a mage. Mm -hmm. his, uh, his shtick is different. True, but he is still a caster. Not really. He said, remember that Ultima healers don't really work under the same uh, system as Ultima, uh, as Ultima casters. Fair enough. Well, arguably, though, other characters could cast magic, and in fact, I use them for such often in 4, yet a lot of them were affected by the, uh, by the Blackrock. Take, for example, YOLO. Well, he wasn't rendered insane, but... Um... You'll, you, you might notice something. Um, it's pretty much the what you might call the pure progression casters that were affected by the uh, by the ether. So Mariah, yeah, I remember she so was like Mariah. Uh, theoretically, Jana might have been, but I think they they coded her more uh, more like a more like a healer in seven for some reason. It's really pretty much actually the, the actual mage, like the actual full-on mage mages that seem to have been affected. It's just everyone else just lost the ability to cast spells. You notice nobody else has access to mana. Right. Granted, aside from, you know, enemy, like, you know, evil enemy NPCs. Right. 
I didn't think about that at the time. Granted, again, I went back from seven to one through four. Right. And I tried. I tried six. And I just it felt. I had problems with the lighting in it. The fact that I couldn't see to the edge of the view map in a well-lit room because it was shadowed out from darkness. And that would have been one thing, except for that it was Lord British's throne room. Yeah, it's, it's, hard, getting, it's hard getting by in U6 when, it, when, it's, when night falls. This was inside so, uh, a building. Even so. Um, I mean, I get where you're going, but... At, you at U six as of yet? I don't think they had like unit like like oh ubiquitous streetlights. Right. So you're inside your castle is being illuminated by well candles and the occasional fireplace. Right. Now, if you want to argue that the fireplaces should have had a wider range of illumination, well, that's probably that's probably you know uh, probably a better argument. Oh, uh, oh, I'm not a coder, so I really can't say that I could have done better. Oh, you can make the argument regardless of whether or not you have the programming ability to do it yourself. No, but we're, I we're just talking about the feasibility, not like, like the actual, for lack of a better word, the actual reality, as opposed right. to what you need to do in the code to make the reality happen. Right. You know, I do my best not to criticize U6 too much because of all of the Ultimas, it's the one I don't feel that I gave a fair shake to. And, I played, like I said, fully through one through four. Granted, and well, I tried playing five, and I just couldn't figure it out. I tried and tried, and I just, you know, do it because it felt like U four, but I tried to play it like U four, and I it didn't go well. I went, I went into it. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I went into a town. I was asked if I followed Blackthorn or Lord British. I was saying that I was followed uh, Lord British, and promptly the guards decided to eat my face off. Well, yeah, it, it uh, does help if you, if you, before you like booted up and started playing, reading the book of lore and particularly Blackthorn's little addendum and like the final pages, kind of important for uh, getting a few concepts in your head that otherwise you, yeah, you're going to make mistakes like that and the guards are not going to react well to them and that's going to put you in a poor position. I mean, mind you, Worst case scenario, rather than fighting them, just like let them send you to prison. What you will find out fairly quickly is the prison is reasonably is not terribly difficult to get out of. Well, there is that. But yeah, if you went in, uh, if you went in, you're prouding, hey, yes, I, I support Lord British over Blackthorn, the guy who's currently in charge because British is missing. Yeah, the guards uh, don't take to it very well. That, that's absolutely true. Or if I said I was the Avatar instead of, instead of my character's actual name, well, well otherwise we're hitting the windmill. Some people don't react well to that. On the other hand, other people do. So really, it depended on who you, who you were telling. Right. It also doesn't help that the version of U5 I tried the first was the NES version. Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> Yeah, uh, of of all the uh, uh, of all the uh, Ultimas that transitioned to the to the Nintendo, um, well, okay, yeah, I, I think that one may may have been the worst of the bunch. It's arguable because I think technically U six was transitioned to the Super Nintendo, and I mm -hmm. honestly don't remember 
just how bad of a how, how how reliable or bad of a hatchet job that one was. People have told me that it was a reasonably faithful port, but having but, not yeah. played U six to any major depth, but that's on me, not on other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be fair, I got Ultima six fairly early on, but I didn't finish it for a long time because when I got it, I did not yet have a PC. And trying to play Ultima 6 in its Commodore iteration, even with two chained disk drives, the sheer amount of disk swapping you had to do was absolutely insane. My god. Yes. Uh, I had there, enough problems. There's, there's, there's a reason why that was the last Ultima that was released on any platform other than PC. I've only tried to ever play one role-playing game on Commodore 64, and that was uh, Pool of Radiance, the old SSI gold box Pool of Radiance. Right. I'm ha well familiar with it. Having played the PC version, after you installed it, you didn't really need to disk swap. You just needed a disk in the drive, and you were good. Yes, because hard drive. And there was only really like two install disks, if memory serves. It may now, have been. Yes. But go ahead. On C64, it was like four discs, and you needed to swap, a swap from them regularly. Like, in between making each character, if I remember correctly, you had to swap discs each time you made a character to save that character, and then go back to the character creator, which was on another disc. That might be true. I honestly don't recall at this point. It's been quite a while. Right. But I remember the graphics being somewhat higher quality on C64 versus PC. Believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. The C64, um, if, you were, if your IBM was CGA or even possibly just EGA, yeah, it probably looked better on the C64 than it did on the IBM. When they got to some of the later Gold Box titles where they actually went full VGA, that, that, that finally changed, but... Hmm. And apparently, there apparently some of the old VGA ones did actually go on C64. I'm going to have to look up screenshots to see how, see how painful that was. C64 did see most, if not all, of the uh, gold box titles, whether it was the original series, whether it was the, one, the Kryn ones. Uh, pretty sure they had Gateway and Treasures of the Savage Frontier, which were actually some of the last ones that were released. Oh, okay. I, I did find C64 side by side comparisons of the PC versus the C64 uh, for Savage Frontier, and it, it, the VGA didn't translate well to C64. No, I'm sure it didn't. <laughs> so that has me finding myself wanting to play uh, the Gold Box games again, except for I realize I would be spending more time save scumming max HP at level up. Than I would actually playing the game. Uh, just you could do that, yes, or you could just break down and down download. I think it's called Gold Edit, <sighs> and then basically just manually set your character's hit points using the using the cheat program after you level up each time to save yourself uh, that trouble. I mean, if you're gonna, I mean, yes, you're using a cheat program as opposed to doing it authentically by constantly reloading and save scumming, but that's just a different, it's just a different flavor of cheating, really. True. I mean, to be fair, though, I was also one of the ones who swore by not actually uh, lowering the difficulty and playing the playing the games on the difficulty that they started at. 
Yeah, but that's an entirely separate issue. That brings back some memories, though. Because growing up in a small uh, rural Missouri town, there was very much the, in my, in my younger days, the satanic panic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but let's you know, not open that can of worms more than we need to. That being said, though, is my mother was afraid of me playing them, not because of anything, you know, evil or anything, but more she was afraid of me being caught playing them at school, like Dungeons and Dragons at school and getting in yeah. uh, school trouble because, yeah. Yeah, because all, because all that nonsense, yes. Right. Well, one day a friend lent me a copy of Pool. Well, actually, no. My first gold box game wasn't Pool of Radiance. It was the third game, uh, Secret of the Silver Blades. Right. You know they uh, gave me, th- or they gave me their install discs for it. Mm. That is, their install discs, not their, uh, not their manual. Not their car- Right. Right. So I was having to, uh, knowing just a couple of the words, pray that I got those words every time, and. Playing the game without oh, the manual. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the, well, it wasn't the manual so much as the code wheel that was the copy protection mechanism. Yeah. Right. And not having the story and the journal entries that actually had clues and maps and stuff. Well, yeah. Back in the days when putting that in a book would save you, you know, money on not having as many discs in the box. Mm. Back when print was cheap, but electronic media was not. <sighs> At least comparatively. Right. Though that makes... One thing that makes me feel old is when I got my new PC that I got back in May. Mm-hmm. I, re- you know, I remember... I thought, wow, a two terabyte hard drive. This is a lot of space. How am I going to fill it all? <laughs> now it's about one, th- one third full because I have... Let's see... Uh, Halo Master Chief Collection. Thank you, X. Or thank, thank you, Xbox Game Pass. So, uh, it's almost like we're the unofficial supporters of the Game Pass on uh, the Dragons now. You see, Battlefield or Battlefleet Gothic, uh, Pathfinder Kingmaker, Final Fantasy IX, mm-hmm. Code Vein, or as my friends have been calling it, Weeb Souls. Okay, but yeah, I remember when I thought. <sighs> 10 megabytes for for a game was a huge game. How could you possibly play through that all? Namely, when I was installing a friend's borrowed copy, because we did a lot of that back in high school. I'm sure most of most of the dragons did. You know, lending and copying floppies. Yeah, be careful before you go making that opinion known. You might find there's um, there's at least a few people who will who will prove heavily resistant to that entire line of inquiry amongst the dragons. But again, this was literally 25 years ago for me. I, 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 I grasp this. I do. I'm just telling you, I've seen almost word for word versions of this discussion come up in the past, back when we were just on the news groups. Oh. And to say that it was a, a heated topic um, would be kind. Fair enough. But, you know, being older and wiser, I make a point that everything that I, everything that I play, out, well, outside of emulation, even then I consider that a gray area, is something that I have legitimate. 
Mm-hmm. Especially since I'm a streamer and, you know, it's an extremely bad karma thing to make money off of something that's not something that you have a right to have. Yes. But anyway, so yeah, you, you shared discs because that's the situation you were in. All right. Living in the middle of nowhere, that was the way that we expanded our collective pool of games that we had between us. Right. And largely, ultimately, anything that we did that with, we ended up, if we liked it long enough, buying copies of our own. I mean, I was responsible for Warcraft 1 being very popular in my school or in my gifted class because I lent around the demo disc I had out of a PC gamer that had the uh, first couple levels of both sides of Warcraft 1. And a bunch, of, a bunch of the guys went out and actually bought their own copies of the full game. But anyway, I remember those days, uh, the, my, the days of the 386, when I had a 40 meg hard drive. The idea of a game taking up 10 megabytes was insane. The idea of actually having to delete things to make space on my hard drive for other games was... It was... Seemed utterly ludicrous. Right. But it's surprising, you know, Moore's Law and technology marching on and all of that good stuff. Hmm. And when I did finally get into PCs again, around 1990, I was playing the gold box stuff. It wasn't until 95 that I actually got my first access to Ultima. Right. And then later, after I got out of college and spent some time in the Army... I ended up buying the full Ultima collection. This was right back when I believe Ultima 9 was either coming out or on the or had already been Ultima well okay Ultima 9 was said it was going to be coming out for quite some time but I think it was finally officially released in 99 but they had been talking about it for like at least 2 to 3 years prior. Right. I'm trying to remember the actual date of of the Ultima collection release. Oh 1997. Okay. And Ultima 9 came out, let's see here, 1999, okay. That would be why I remembered ads for U9, but not U9 itself on the collection. Yep, because Pagan was already out at that point. I seem to remember that that version of U2 was broken and you couldn't go to space. It's not that you couldn't go to space, but the problem was that several of the planetary maps were all represented by the same map because there was basically a shared file name issue, which is not a problem if you were doing disk swapping, like you would have been when you played U2 originally. But when you copied all the files onto a hard disk, you ended up with like like three or four or something files that all had the same file name. So which uh, so the last one of the bunch became the file name, and yeah, that that caused problems. But I remember that collection specifically because I actually had a chance to play a Calabeth. I'm thinking, ooh, the, fir- the very, very first Ultima before there was Ultima. Yeah. I played the, it. Uh, the Proto. And I sucked at it. <laughs> I would get down to about a few, I would get a few monsters killed for Lord British, and then I would go back and ultimately get myself overwhelmed and die every single time. A Calabeth just never held my interest long enough for me to try and complete. And I still remember uh, an interview with uh, Lord British saying that the entirety of the code for Akalabeth became the dungeon code for U1. Wouldn't surprise me. There's definitely, there's basically, there's definitely extreme similarities. 
No, it's not like I'm doing anything else at the moment, but if you want to scatter, that's you. That's all on you. My current project for streaming has been getting through playing the slow way through the entire Final Fantasy series. And every time I play a new one, inevitably people who aren't regulars of the channel come in and talk about their memories playing that game and how important certain things were to them. I just found it very fascinating. And it's surprising seeing certain games having an impact on people hmm, that you wouldn't expect them to, expect them to have. Like, you know, seeing some of the horrible atrocities that certain evil empires are doing in Ultima 9 right now actually sparked big philosophical political debate in my channel last night, for example. I mean, I don't want to go into it because, let's face it, Politics are a minefield these days. True. But the strange thing was, when I played Ultima 9, I don't, I, I've played through the game to its end back in 2000. I don't remember, or well, 2001, actually. I don't remember anything that I... I mean, I remember the tricks that I used to beat the final boss, but all of the political stuff I've gone through, all of the big character development, I don't remember any of it. So it's almost to me like playing a new game that I know I've played and beaten before, but I don't remember any of what I did. It's because it's been play, over 20 play. years. Go ahead. Are we talking about Ultima 9 or Final Fantasy 9? Okay. Yeah, if you want the big U9 fan of the group, you'd probably want to speak to Sergorn. No, that's okay. <laughs> There's a couple of the games I can say that I really didn't give a fair shake because I played them a little bit and just thought, you know, I can't stand this. Mm -hmm. U9 was one of them. U6 was another one. U5NES was another one. I'll be right back. Did, was that a kid in the background I heard or was that here? It's theoretically possible you caught a faint whiff of the television my father's watching in another room. There's definitely something in your background. Hmm. Oh, I can guarantee that. Sounds like it involves a lot of screaming. Uh, Not the moment. Also, hello, Kenneth? Hi. Uh, Made it. Kind of. Uh, Unless y'all are like, ah, no, we're done. Sorry, man. <laughs> Not even. It's just we were trying to find stuff to talk about. Carry on. Oh, a wayward son. Oh, hello. That's interesting. Mm hmm Although that doesn't make a great deal of sense. No, that doesn't make any sense at all. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Wait a minute. What is the great and wondrous nonsensical <laughs> mystery? I'm, uh... Oh, I'm trying to figure out if this... Okay, no, the power bar that's kind of attached permanently to the uh, shelf next to me is in fact on. So what's the deal with this power brick? One of my power bricks the, is not producing. It was producing. by the nice people at the intelligence agencies, and you shouldn't ask too many questions. Uh, yeah, well... Ah, there we go. That, that seems to have woken it up. 
let my switch go too long without charging. Yeah, and then that, all of a sudden, will that will generally result in a non-responsive switch. That has been my observation. And But then just plugging in the power supply, or plugging it into the power supply, it wasn't pulling a charge, which is always concerning when it's, you know, a fairly expensive piece of equipment. Yes. Turns out, though, that I just had to reseat, I guess, the adapter. Oh, well. Ah, no switch update tonight. Well, maybe a little later. Mm. Wow. That stuff is strong. I'm, uh, I'm out of wine, and I don't have any beer. Uh, well, no, that's not entirely true. There's uh, some beer in the fridge, but I daren't touch it because it's like one of the only beers my wife can drink. So, yeah, that would probably be ill-advised. Yep, so that leaves me with uh, either the whiskey upstairs, which, granted, is good, or um, Saskatoon Berry Moonshine. Oh, dear. It's a very Albertan drink. I'm sure. Could be worse. Could be worse. It could be a very Tim Burton drink. <laughs> yes. Saskatoon berries are, are delightful. They they truly are. Um, in, in just about any of their uh, various uses. I feel like I missed a very interesting conversation. Not really. I was just complaining about the fact that... Well, I was complaining about... Yeah, hmm. I was complaining first that my switch wasn't charging because apparently I needed to reseed its power adapter. There's a little power bar kind of <clears throat> duct taped to the shelf right beside me uh, <clears throat> where all my electronic things are mm-hmm. drawing power through, of course. Um, and then I was just briefly commenting that, you know, I would normally have like a glass of wine or something for a recording session. But uh, being that I'm out of wine and being that the only beer I have left in the house is the kind that my wife can drink. Uh, which means I dare not tap into that supply, absent permission, since there are uh, very few <coughs> things that she can still actually, at least at least where alcohol is concerned, there's very few things that she can still have. Bud Light, interestingly, is made uh, entirely with rice, and so is safe for her, unlike many other beers, which use, um, well, I mean, primarily barley, but oftentimes a blend of grains, which sometimes incorporates corn. And we talked about the corn allergy previously. Corn liquor tends to be a major thing in the Midwestern states of various parts of reality. Yeah, anywhere in North America, really. But yeah, there are certain there are certain types of liquor that you know kind of rely like are dependent on. I believe bourbon, right? Has to be corn derived. Tennessee sour mash. Um, I wouldn't know. The strongest thing I consume is. Maybe a half-strength strawberry daiquiri every two to five years. Well, right now, absent any other option, I have uh, Saskatoon Berry Moonshine. That's what it says on the bottle. It just just sounds like trouble in a bottle right there. You know, it's not not as sweet as as I would think. Um, It's got some kick to it, though. It leaves me wondering about Canadian marketing law when they actually market something called moonshine. Uh, here in the United States, that term brings connotations of something a bunch of good old boys brewed in the backwoods in their home homemade still. Buy a hundred pound yeast and some copper line. <clears throat> Everybody oh. knew that he made moonshine. Oh. My brother Bill has a still on the hill, laid off a, or runs off a gallon or two. Yeah. So, and I mean, <sighs> here's the thing. Um, it's actually legal to make moonshine in Canada as long as you have a proper license. 
So. But if you have a proper license, can you really call it moonshine? Well, there is that, right? Because, I mean, the whole, the whole idea, you know, behind that name is, of course, is you're making it under dark of night in clandestine circumstances. But, yeah, no, um, strictly speaking, uh, basically in Canadian law, um, the act of making a mash, any kind of mash, is not illegal in and of itself. Um, now, having a still, owning a still for the purpose of distilling said mash is illegal unless you have obtained the proper permits for the still. Um, that said, that only applies to alcohol. If you're using the still for water distillation or essential oils, because hi, Karen, um, then, you know, you're fine. You're good to go without a permit. Uh, just, you know, if you start distilling alcohol in it, then you need obviously to have an appropriate permit. Uh, dating myself and outing myself as a former user of certain green smokables. What? They're mostly legal oh, in the U.S. Spray. and entirely legal here. Not where I live now. But well, I said mostly. And not at the time where I was... I even say most of the U.S. at this point, honestly. Not yet. Uh, okay, fine. Oh, Anyways, but, go on. You know. Well, the curiosity that was the 1990s head shop. Ah. Where you had all sorts of various colorful, you know, pictures of Bob Marley and Frank Zappa and Roger Waters and such on the walls of the place. But also all sorts of signs saying these pipes are for tobacco only, not for use with anything illegal. Wink and a nod. Right. And yet you could hear the counter monkey talking to any of the users about this or that different cultivar. You know, we had shops like that here, though, too, that were... You know, I mean, no, there, there were shops, I can think of at least two or three shops, one in West Edmonton Mall, for that matter, I think, that, you know, yeah, I mean, if you if you were the sort who was in need of, say, a bong or, you know, uh, pipes of various type, there was a place that would set you up. And yeah, I mean, before marijuana was legalized here in Canada, um, they would have had similar signage, you know, right. uh, but, you know. <laughs> and, and I mean, to the degree that they need to, they still do, uh, right? You know, don't necessarily. Uh, I can't think of anybody who actually buys a bong for the purpose of smoking tobacco, but there it is. Well, the the whole talk about you know uh, declaring a still for use for water only when you know anybody who could you know who has experience with distillery could look at it and know better. Oh sure. I mean, people do distill water, you know, like uh, that, that, that's a thing that right. some people are quite enthusiastic about, but, uh, you know, because God, even like one of my relatives is a fluoride truther, like, oh my gosh. Oh but, God. Uh, are you kidding I know, me? right? No, I know. Right. Like, ah, just like, seriously. Um, yeah, she was all like, yay, our city got rid of the fluoride in water. And then like every dentist that I know. Is like, yeah, it's a disaster down there. Like, we've seen such a spike in cavity rates. Um, but be that as it may, uh, they come in all shapes and sizes, I guess. Um, yeah, be that as it may, there are some people Most, who, you know, mo do... mostly in the rotten and hold filled sizes these days, but yes. Yeah. Well, or like, you know, the other one that I like to tell is, uh, you know, people, um, the hospitals here. You want water in a hospital? It's tap water. You want water in a hospital in Alberta, it's tap water. 
because that is, you know, and they've tested, like, they've done, like, repeated, they do repeated testing on, like, different kinds of bottled water and things like that. And the only water that meets their, this might just be an Edmonton area thing. I don't know if it's true in Calgary, uh, for that matter. But at least in Edmonton, the only water that consistently meets their standards, right? Unless they need, like, you know, it, it's different if we're talking about, like, you know, uh, you know, like if they need like pure reverse osmosis distilled water, sure, fine, whatever, then obviously they're going with that. But, you know, in general, the only, the, the, the water that is cons that consistently meets their requirements um, for, you know, what like bacteria content and all the rest, blah, 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 um, is tap water. Is the, the water coming out of the taps here, right? Funny uh, thing is, I not... thought most bottled water was tap water. Well, at least around here, if you buy Dasani, it's Calgary tap water, basically. Uh, or at least it used to be. I don't know if it still is. So, yeah, I mean, it, in a way, yeah, bottled water is just someone else, is somewhere else's tap water that they're selling to you where you are. And that's fine if it's Calgary that's doing the bottling and less fine if it's Detroit. But... <sighs> Oh, you 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 don't want you don't want yeah, water you don't want water <laughs> from the finest flint reservoirs and aquifers. I know, right? So, outside of that, though, back in you know that's something that we take for granted these days is the ubiquity of of safe drinking water. Oh, for sure, for sure. You know, everybody complains that their drinking water where they live sucks. Well, and I mean, like I've been, you know. <laughs> This is kind of one of the things that I enjoy about being a world traveler. Well, enjoy and don't, right? Because I can tell, you know, I can tell uh, Edmonton water from Calgary water to it to a certain extent, right? Like they do because, and, and it's a combination of factors, right? It's I used to work at a water treatment plant, so I, I got uh, a lot, like a very like <laughs> a very close up view of the exact process by which. Uh, water is treated, at least around here. My sympathies. My future father-in-law is a wastewater treatment, you know. Well, there's uh, a difference between perfect. wastewater treatment and drinking water treatment. Now, I have seen the wastewater treatment side, too. I've done cybersecurity assessments at wastewater right. treatment facilities. And that's... You know what? Actually, though, like, that one's interesting because there, I think the most fascinating thing at a wastewater treatment facility is uh, the fact that they have to heavily, heavily, heavily oxygenate um, a lot of the treatment ponds and the reason they do that is because everything sinks you know right. uh and it's funny when you're walking past the treatment pond it's like do not fall in <laughs> you know the, the 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 techs are like whatever you do do not fall in because you drop you just you go under there is no floating right. um because it's so oxygenated um so you know like and I, I, but yeah water treatment plant or wastewater treatment plants oof, a little bit smelly water treatment like for drinking water different again um so i've seen kind of both sides of it uh just over the course of all the different projects i've and places i've worked over the years oh who's Ooh. this Poo. hark a wild golden flame hello uh we were just chatting about water treatment <laughs> which can tell you just how focused and on topic we are ever <laughs> <laughs> on topic <laughs> that was my point in fact <laughs> I've given up on asking if there's a topic. Yeah, I used to try. I really did used to try. I know. And now we're all why. very trying. Yeah. That uh, never stopped. 
That 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 was that's not a now thing. That's just a continuous thing. True. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but uh, yeah, like it's just uh, mm, I'm trying to think of like the the best way to. But yeah, like I can t- like you know I go to different places and I drink water and it's like oh yeah this is different. Like I can kind of tell. Um, some places more than others. You must get you must get an awful lot of the tourist trots. <laughs> you know what? No. Actually, I'm lucky um, in that regard. But then again, I haven't been sent to, you know, thus far, I've not had to go anywhere that has required um, an exotic additional collection of vaccinations. I'm not necessarily sure that that will hold true for the remainder of my career. I don't even mean going to countries where you need them. I'm talking more going to a different water table. Getting a different bacterial load in your stomach, you know, getting the local flora in your stomach compared to what's it, what you normally drink at home. You know, though, like, that's the thing. I've, I've been fortunate to have come to at least, the, uh, I've come at least this far in my life with a fairly um, cast iron stomach. Uh, even to the point where sometimes, like, I'll, you know, where, um, like, when we've had food poisoning uh through the house right um everybody else will get sick and i'll feel like crud but maybe i'm the only one who's not throwing up right like i'll sometimes weather it better than the rest of the household i don't know what it is but like i can get away with a lot (laughs) in terms of um what i can hit my stomach with and and not have to pay the price for it um except sriracha sauce now which is unfortunate. You see, because that's something I've experienced, you know, being an army brat and having oh. spent time in myself. The whole family bug of move, uh, picking up steaks and moving every three to four years is something yeah. my family did when I was growing up. Right. And not to mention after dad passed us moving to Florida and the seven months I spent alternately in Leftbridge and Medicine Hat when I was living with my girlfriend at the time. City of Mystery. Go on. Every time I made a major move for the first couple of weeks, my guts were in knots from the, you know, getting used to drinking the local water. Yeah. I won't go I won't go into graphic detail, but (laughs) no need. You know, having never lived in Canada, having never spent time in this part of Florida until we moved down, you know, having well again. It's surprising how much the drinking water, you know, the quality of the drinking water can change. I mean, I even had that problem moving from the rural well we had because we had a well where I lived in uh, growing up in Gainesville, Missouri. But then I went to college in Bolivar, Missouri. Ah. And the water there is horrifyingly bad. It's so Go ahead. No, no, no. You finish your thought. I, I just. You just said something that I want to follow up on, but go go finish your thought. That you know, to keep the water to where it's fit to drink, they have to put so much chlorine in the water that mm. you go in to take a shower. You know, after five ten five ten minutes in the shower, your eyes are stinging like you've been underwater in a heavily chlorinated pool. Yeah, like you've been in the swimming pool. Ugh. And they, because of that, it really threw off the composition of various things that relied on the drinking water, like, say, fountain drinks or, you know, any kind of drink that relied on tap water. Oh, yeah. That I have experienced. I have a story about that. Well, anyway, 
And it was so surprising to me that because they ratcheted up, ratcheted up the amount of syrup in, in the fountain, uh, soda fountains pretty much everywhere across town to make up for the fact that the water was so heavily chlorinated. Mmm, chlorine cola. Well, you know, like, you're, you're definitely onto something. So my wife's hometown now actually gets water from Edmonton. But that's a fairly recent development. Um, and I can rem- remember, like, when I was first dating her, uh, you know, we'd go out to visit her folks. And the tap water there was well water. Um, somewhat treated, not particularly heavily chlorinated. But, right. like, it definitely, it definitely had an odd smell and an odd taste. And, uh, you know, so, and, but yeah, like I remember going to events or even like to the bar and you order something that has to, you know, yeah, it's like a syrup, you know, like you order a pop, right. And it just, it tastes kind of funky because it's got the local water mixed in, um, a lot of iron in the water, which is the funny story. And then I'll go on to the other thing that you twigged my memory on. Um, the funny story was, so my mother-in-law donates used to, I don't know if she still does, but. For the longest time, she was like regular, regular, regular blood donor, right? Right. And at some point, my wife's folks started getting in the, uh, like, you know, the, I don't know if it's Amazon that their service is with, but like, you know, the big, the big water cooler, right? The big water cooler jugs. Right. And they started drinking that almost exclusively because, you know, they were sick and tired of the tap water. Uh, not that I blame them. Thing is, the next time she went in to donate blood, um, they turned her away because she didn't have enough iron, right? Because they test it. Right. Uh, So she started making, so not wanting to go back to just drinking tap water exclusively because they do have a lot of iron in the tap water. It definitely has that kind of a tangy taste to it. Um, She's just, all she did was, you know, for the cup or two of tea that she would have in a day, that was, you know, it would be tap water that went into the kettle instead of the, uh, the, the cooler water. And that was enough. That was enough. The next time she went to donate blood after that, you know, they did the little test, they dropped the drop of blood into, uh, the, uh, the solution and it just sank like a stone. So, uh, very, very iron rich water, but you, you tweak my memory on something because like, I remember as a kid, um, we would often go and visit my dad's mom. And my dad's mom lived, actually, it's kind of, this was, I don't know if I've ever told this story, and I won't get into it now, but there was a time when, you know, my wife and I were first dating, um, where we had to pause and actually work out exactly which people we were related to in this one particular town, just to make sure that the names didn't line up. Um, because it turns out that a lot of my wife's, and I know, I know, I know you've made so many jokes about, uh, <laughs> the, the limited number of, of surnames in your area, Harmony. Um, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> say no more, but, um, it, it turned out actually that, uh, like a lot of her relatives were basically my grandmother's like circle of friends. It was really kind of cool, actually. Like, there was right. this connection that we didn't even know existed. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, all the times I went and visited my grandmother um, and we went and, like, played at the local park and there were other kids there, I'm sure that on more than a few occasions I wound up just playing alongside the girl that I would one day marry without even realizing it. 
Um, but when we went there, and we went there fairly regularly, you know, every couple weekends or so, um, the water, uh, the tap water was well water, although it was pretty good as well water goes. But I remember that my grandma always had this big cooler just sitting on the counter right when you came in the door. And like that was kind of just the, if you needed a cup of water, that would be where you would serve yourself from, right? Right. And uh, I remember pretty much every time we went there, uh, there would come, you know, one point where my dad and me would hop in the truck and we would drive up the highway to this little point just before you cross the North Saskatchewan River and you park on the side of the road and you hop out and there's this culvert just spewing, uh, just just pouring out uh, water and we would fill fill the jug right from there. It was like it was like a, a natural spring that was uh, emptying out into the river, and that was the drinking water that my grandma had. And I don't know, maybe maybe that has contributed to my ability to be hardy at uh, changing water tables as frequently as I do. And I will admit I am partial to well water versus city tap water. Because well, there's a between well and spring water, but yeah, I take your point. Because every time I've ever had to drink city water, it's always had a it always, you know, if it didn't taste like chlorine, like I was drinking pool water, like in Bolivar, yeah. it felt like I was taste. it always had a very strong metallic taste to me. And sure. it didn't matter what city I was in, you know, or what state or even country I was in, tap water always, ta- or, you know, tap water off of municipal water supply always tasted metallic to me. Well, especially if they're using aluminum to soften it. Or alum, as the case may be. But, hmm. I wonder what you would think of Edmonton water because like we got rid of the aluminum content in the water a little while back, I think. Well, having had a girlfriend who grew up in Calgary, I never really heard anything nice about Edmonton. You know, it, it, it's funny. <laughs> well, the feeling's coming, mutual. Coming from America, and again, this is, I guess you could call it positive prejudice here. Sure. Every almost, you know, rank and file, you know, to a person, can't, or my time in Lethbridge and around the Calgary area, everybody felt universally nicer than I was used to living in the United States. Well, sure. at least living in rural Missouri and rural Florida. Except sure. if you brought up Edmonton or hockey, specifically <laughs> Edmonton hockey. Yeah, well... You know, and it doesn't just extend to hockey, right? Like, I mean, well, but, you know, like, we're two, ma- it's the two major cities in the province, right? And they have essentially the same collection of sports franchises. The big hockey team, there's the CFL teams, right? And everything, well, although it is a little different with the CFL. It's a tiny bit different with the CFL. I, I have to admit, I don't really know the difference between NFL and CFL football. Uh, NFL, smaller fields, and you get one more down. Oh, so CFL, uh, Canadian football, you only go for three downs? Yep. And huh. the field's a bit bigger. Huh. Metrics. Yeah, we, we play on hard mode. <laughs> well, well, to be fair, I've actually watched Canadian rugby being played hmm. compared to American football. And I find myself seeing in major games, even, you know, in playoff and even the Super Bowl, people 
coming off the field for like say a spray or you know a very very minor injury where yeah. where i remember and people saying that it was an old rugby saying it's all fun and games until someone loses a testicle then it's a sport <laughs> well you know and like there's something to that because like i mean we yeah there with the exception of hockey because you know reasons um <laughs> It it really is. Someone's moving around upstairs. I gotta go look at that. Fortunately, I'm wearing my headset, so I can just walk. I mean, it, it's but, not like they're sleeping in front of a rock, sliding across ice or anything. No, no. But yeah, I mean, like hockey does tend to just be quite quite violent, and even at the minor league levels. Okay. Well, I when I worked for I well. It's been five years, I suppose I can say. I used to work uh, direct TV work at home. I was one of their escalation departments. So if one of our agents, you know, I was the one who was taught, you know, trained to, in a very polite and business-like formal way, telling people to go screw off. Know that I wasn't going to give them like hundreds of dollars of stuff for free. Anyway, I had a customer call in looking to try to get very, you know, the nationwide uh channels for watching collegiate hockey and for watching minors hockey not watching nhl well i also pointed out that part of our sports package also included canadian teams you see she was you've heard of soccer moms this lady was a hockey mom and all you know her kids grew up playing hockey she was from you know she was from the north of the united states well I told her that if she was that interested in hockey, I all, or one package I had that I could provide her also involved uh, a lot of Canadian hockey. And she said, no, no, they, they play goon hockey up there. They're violent. And was specifically somebody who complaining that Canadian uh, high school and collegiate hockey was far more violent by comparison than American hockey. I think it is, actually. You see, now, my major experience with hockey is not from actually playing it unless you count Mutant League Hockey on the Sega Genesis. And the whole point there was to kill other people. A good solid sport, that. It, you know, it was all to get into fights. In fact, that was, you know, much like Blood Bowl, you know, from Games Workshop. It's, you know, often easier to reduce the amount of live players on the other team and walk the, you know, walk the puck across the rink rather than you know doing it through excellent plays so my knowledge of actual hockey is immediate uh, admittedly very limited but go ahead but and so not really being much of a sports fan though Something that surprised me, having had to at least fake being a sports fan in high school, was the fact that at least in Commonwealth countries, the violence is not happening on the field, it's happening in the stands. Now, I've heard legends of the quote-unquote uh, British soccer hooligan. In fact, I remember one uh, Games Workshop description of the way orcs spoke in Warhammer that they were meant to be the 
soccer hooligan uh, stereotype writ large. Yeah, there's something to that. Um, I was gonna the the point that I was gonna that I was go ahead teasing when I mentioned the <laughs> so yeah w- within within hockey the principal rivalry in Alberta is Edmonton versus Calgary, and that is what it is. In football, it's a little weirder because in football, uh, the rivalry is between, uh, well, I mean, Edmonton and Calgary, yes, but also Edmonton and Saskatchewan. To the point that during CFL season, you know, uh, the local Rough Riders fan base will routinely uh, buy billboard advertisements near the football stadium, basically, you know, trolling us with the fact that we that they exist in our midst <laughs> um and you know i mean okay so football obviously is a you know whereas there are modes of playing hockey that do not involve aggressive physical contact football is a contact sport well they've tried to make it not i mean technically when i was playing junior varsity we were officially playing two hand touch Right. It's just two hand touch at high velocity will knock you on your ass. It doesn't matter what you do. Exactly. I mean, we, we, we were wrecking each other. Yeah. Uh, so, but the thing is, you do have a point there because like football's kind of, I find football kind of, you know, weird in a way because like on the field, I mean, yeah, the players are hitting each other and occasionally there are, you know, like, there's not really like, you never really see like a hockey fight at a football game. You know, they're they're tackling each other and they're slamming into each other and all of that stuff. And occasionally, yeah, you can see like tempers boiling over and, you know, people are like raging at each other on the field. But it rarely, rarely, rarely ever comes to, you know, fisticuffs, right? Versus the all too common sight of two guys going at it in the hockey rink. But the fans at football games are... Let's just say that, and, and this holds much. true in both. This holds true in both directions. If you are wearing, you know, so I've mentioned three teams: Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatchewan. Basically, if you are wearing obvious indications of team colors, and you walk into, especially the men's room, and predominantly there are not your team colors in there, best hold it for a few minutes lest you wind up with somewhat damper pants than you <laughs> entered the room with. <laughs> oh, I could tell you about some football rivalries. I live in Florida. Have y'all ever heard of the big rivalry versus the UF Gators and the FSU Seminoles? No, but uh, I mean, I'm assuming that college football rivalries are every bit as savage as, well, any other sports rivalry one could name. Well, given they are. The, yeah, they're definitely so here in florida i mean we would see people you know i would go to the grocery store see people actively arguing in the parking lot or or seeing somebody at work having a gators or fsu pennant up on their cube suddenly finding that pennant being you know taken down or (laughs) or torn off the flag or the pole and you know it, it got heated however I felt bad for my manager when I worked for uh, Dell for a few years because he was from Miami. Oh, 
So he had a he had his own team he was rooting for, and both sides of the skaters Seminoles rivalry were giving him the stink eye. <laughs> yep. Man, this is some great video games podcast. Hey, we just talk about sports all day. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. But, well, when you think about it, though, speaking of football, the violence is actually part of the game. I mean, you realize it's sublimated squad-based objective combat. Yeah, for sure. It's... And I totally get that. Like, you know... And that's what I was getting at earlier. It's like there's there's non-contact variants of of hockey, and that's fine. But football, you know, tackling is part of the game. It is what it is. You can play flag football. You can play, yeah, like two hand touch. But are you really? <laughs> but you know, let's be honest. Even if you're technically playing flag football, most people just go for the go to cream the other side anyway. Yeah, it does happen, and depending on who your gym teacher is, they either call it or let it happen. Uh, I'm just kind of nervously watching my phone here, because it's already 11 o'clock here, and you know, the minute my wife texts me, I basically got to drop everything and run up and start making food. But uh, I think I'm good for a few minutes. This will be a short and somewhat weird episode, but that's okay. Wait, wait, how, how is that different? It is true. It is true. Well, usually it's long and weird, not not short and weird. Usually okay, okay, I'll I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah, we don't have Doctor Cat back, so it's not like super super weird or brainy, but you know, you just beat me to it. Normally, if you were going to be thinking about super weird or brainy, I'd think a Cran coming in talking about uh, Scrabble. Yeah, I thought well, I was good at that game. Oof. No. No, you are not good at that game. You may think you are good at that game, but Cran is good at some that people game. is operating on a whole other level. <laughs> this is like me playing cribbage against my wife. <laughs> you're no going I, in. You're going to get beat. I don't. I don't try to win at cribbage. I just try to cross the skunk line. If I can, if I can cross the skunk line before my wife. <laughs> gets to the end of the board i have achieved my objectives and in my mind i have won <laughs> to be fair i would argue when it comes to a competitive game of well not even well there's skill in cribbage as much as there's a chance but still when it comes to games of skill you learn more from a loss than you do from a win mm. at least that was my belief back when i was in the competitive tournament chess scene you know, and there's a lot of truth in that because, especially in chess, right? Like you can observe, um, you can observe the moves your other opponent is making as they are kicking your ass with them, right. and you can sort of develop with cribbage. Honestly, the thing I find the most about the thing I find the most educative about cribbage is, and my wife just introduced this to me the not too long ago, but it's basically. Um, it's the low points variant of cribbage. So the idea is that rather than try to get, uh, rather than try to get the most points in a round and advance as far as possible along the board, you want to get the least number of points possible, right? the The idea is basically the loser is the first one to reach the end of the board. Um, and well, that's different. I'll certainly grant. Yeah, right. So you're still otherwise you're still playing cribbage by all the other rules it's just that you as the player are trying to accumulate as few points as possible in any given round 
um, while also delivering as many points as possible to the opposing player. Now, in theory, I should be able to grok this because my family, our game was hearts. And, you know, I mean, yeah. hearts is cutthroat. Cutthroat points, right? Um, and yet you let off with in theory, which leads me to believe. <laughs> yeah, in, in theory, in theory, uh, but yeah, in, in practice, my wife still wins. Um, because either I'm that bad at cribbage or she's that good at cribbage. But I did find that playing the low points variant um, was more educative for me in terms of like all the different ways that you can score points because damn did i find all of them <laughs> you know i got i got the i got the runs and i've got the like the, like the sequences of cards right so you get they like, make a you medicine know. for that you know uh, you know <laughs> ah there you go see i was trying to see i was bringing us back to the water discussion earlier right like you know you get the sequence of cards right or you know all the different ways of adding up to 15 um or just like, ah, uh, it's, I'm very, very good at doing, I'm very, very good at doing whatever it is I need to do to not win at cribbage. Right? <laughs> so when we're playing traditional cribbage, uh, I'm very good at getting like almost no points in a round. And when we're playing with these modified rules, man, I find ways to get points that I didn't even know existed five minutes ago. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's a thing. But, but yeah, I it 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 is generally speaking, you know, watching someone kick your ass and watching the moves they make, there is a lot of education from that. Which is why my sister doesn't like playing hearts against me anymore, because once I figured out what her tactic was, um, once I figured out like all of her different strategies, I basically just set myself up as the chaos monkey that uh existed I'm just trying like... to screw this board <laughs> <laughs> yeah pretty much well, have you heard of the chaos monkey uh, not specifically but i'm pretty sure not... i grasp what you're getting at it's not my own term it's not my own term when uh, i hear chaos monkey, actually... i think the legend of sun wukong mm, no i'm thinking of netflix okay netflix basically built a let's call it a utility I think they open sourced it a while back called chaos monkey. And since then there have been several other monkeys that have been added to the, uh, to the stable of utilities, uh, automated utilities within Netflix's environment, within their, within their infrastructure. What chaos monkey does is basically at random intervals messes up part of Netflix's infrastructure, just like randomly breaks crap. This um, in production in production okay not just so like while netflix the... is actually live it's breaking stuff to test yes chaos monkey just wanders in and starts breaking stuff in production <clears throat> because what that does is it forced like basically netflix if you need coders who can build um resilient systems with phenomenally fast failover capabilities netflix is like the incubator for that right because everybody who works at netflix in the you know in anybody who's doing the tech side at netflix basically has to be able to build infrastructure and build applications and build services with chaos monkey in mind right 
so that when inevitably something gets wrecked, everything just fails over and keeps running. And then they can go and, you know, fix whatever Chaos Monkey broke. Um, but that became my play style for, for my sister. And unfortunately, it really threw her off because she's like super, super analytical. Um, so, you know, she doesn't like playing against me anymore because like literally I'm just there to like, I'm, I'm the guy who's like, you know what, I'm just going to take like one point this round just so you can't get power. Well, I'm not playing to win, I'm playing to stall. <laughs> pretty much. Well, that's actually very interesting that you mentioned that was who here are fans of star trek i assume most of us but go on <laughs> well who here has seen as part of the rather painful second season of the star trek the next generation are we talking about the episode where data played against that one guy yeah and rather than playing to win data played to tie to stall and basically out frustrated the other guy until he until he until he st until he basically seeded the match, right? Because uh, that was measure of a man, right? I believe so. Yeah, it was during the. I didn't time watch with... the series. Yeah, I didn't watch the series regularly, but I do recall this specific episode. I watched pretty much every Trek up until Voyager came out. You could argue that Measure of a Man is where Picard as a character actually starts, right? Like Picard as Picard as the character that is, you know, beloved by us and central to this now new series about him uh, that CBS is producing. Um, it's really, I think, at measure of a man that Picard, as we understand Picard, starts. Some people would argue that it's best of both worlds, but Sergon Dragon makes a very good point, which I agree with, that it's really measure of a man that, you know, sort of, it, it's the first time we see not just Picard the captain, but Picard the character who is developing into something. Well, I'll give you that. However, I would argue that one of my favorite Picard episodes would have to be the drumhead. It's not a bad episode. <laughs> And, of course, the uh, Wesley... I can't remember the name of the episode. The two-parter where Wesley was in in the Academy and they found out that a group was lying or that the team was lying over how their, how their classmate died because they were trying a very dangerous and illegal stunt. Yes. Now, that was a little bit later on in the series. That was, what, season five? I think so. And, you know, funny fact about that... Um, so the lead guy in the squadron that Wesley was part of um, was Nicholas Locarno was the character's right. name. I can't remember the actor's name, um, but the actor went on to play Tom Paris in Voyager. And initially they actually wanted to have Locarno come back right. instead of creating this new character, Tom Paris. But that didn't work out for various reasons. But they brought the actor back. Robert Patrick Harris, is that who? Right. Uh, Robert... Robert Duncan McNeil. Robert Duncan McNeil. Sorry, I'm con I'm conflating different actors. I have a friend who I met playing City of Heroes, who actually was his photo double for Voyager. That is awesome. And did a lot of non-speaking roles here and there in various Trek, uh, various Trek, and even in B five and such. But he was mostly just doing the background parts. He didn't have speaking roles. You know, though, there, <laughs> there's a reason for that. Someone was pointing this out. Uh, and actually, I learned this 
as a result of the Voyager episode. Um, because... You have to pay them more. Exactly. If they say something, you have to pay them more. Um, and the reason I found out about this was because ah, he's like the current ruler or maybe like a former ruler of the state of Jordan um, has a non-speaking extra part at the start of a Star Trek Voyager episode um, because he was in the U.S. and he was touring the Paramount Studios lot and they were shooting whatever episode this was. And so he's right in the intro speaking to Harry Kim. Or, well, no, Harry Kim is speaking to him. He just kind of nods. And it's, but the thing is, it's like, it's kind of an, it's a very awkward and somewhat obvious thing. It's like, he should really be saying something, but he doesn't. He just kind of nods and then walks off. Um, but the reason is, yeah, because, you know, the various rules and, and union requirements are that if they have a speaking part, then their compensation is this much versus if it's just a walk-on part. Huh. Yes. I just looked this gentleman up. You're right. I can't remember if he's the current ruler or former ruler of Jordan, but uh, he's yeah, the current Star Trek fan. Yeah, the current king. Okay, cool. Yeah, big Star Trek fan, apparently. can't remember where I read about that, but I was greatly amused by it when I discovered it at the time. But I met the gentleman playing City of Heroes back in the early mid two thousands. Nice. That's a good place to meet people. Uh, I miss that game, but I know it's technically back with the homecoming servers. But and while it does have the same feel, and it, you know it, it's a game as I remember it. The ephemeral nature of the fact that it's not legitimate servers worries me about its permanency. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, like. You're not wrong. You're definitely not wrong. Although, like, that one's kind of, that almost seems like kind of a special case because, like, even the developers were kind of, I mean, officially they can't be like, yeah, we're totally on board with this. But practically speaking, I think a lot of the people who worked on City of Heroes were kind of like, you go, guys. Um, and the publisher has decided not to, you know, ruin their fun. So that's always nice. Well, the publisher has cracked down a little bit, but. Largely because people were filming themselves making Marvel Comics knockoffs. Yeah, you gotta... It's not a case of protecting your own IP, then. It's just, yeah, stopping the obvious infringement. That's, that's, that's called preventing the lawyers from showing up. Because do you think Marvel would have went after the fans keeping the servers up, or do you think they would have went over for NCSoft, who originally made the game 13 years, who owned the rights of the game? from 13 years ago yeah well and especially because like that becomes a question of you know well what assets were pre-populated in the game that enabled this to become a copyright infringement right well to be fair that was part of why marvel sued them back in the day when it, that lawsuit kind of went away when it found out that the people who were making copyright and marvel copyright infringing things were marvel employees <laughs> yeah well a little irony just, just a little. <sighs> it's true. <clears throat> I spent so much time in that game. I kind of spent way too much time in that game and let it take over too much of my life. Well, that does happen. I was very heavy into the roleplay uh, community at the time. And when I got out of that, I realized that not only was the roleplay community in there very insular and toxic, but I was a contributing factor, and that wasn't very... I was being a not very good person at that time. 
That is this a was, risk. This was not your most avatarly moment. Yeah. Yeah, that was not virtuous. But, I mean, it does... It's... Well, I think we can all appreciate that it's sometimes very difficult to sort of, you know, go against where groupthink is taking things. Uh, especially when you're in the heat of it and, you know, it's like a community that you really know and love and internalize and uh, I'm having some of this trouble right now with Scouts Canada, but kind of in an opposite way because it's like a lot of the people that I respect in Scouts Canada have really <laughs> they're looking at the door and trying to find an exit. It's oh. like, really guys? Really? Well, just like, and I mean like Scouts Canada, like we're we're in the same boat as everybody when it comes to this pandemic stuff. And unfortunately, like some of the policies Scouts Canada has put forth in terms of like, you know, um, how we can proceed with scouting in the quote, new normal, unquote, uh, really rubbing people the wrong way, uh, especially because like we lose the ability to take the Beaver Scouts camping, which, you know, I mean, like we were, that was a, that was a hard won battle in the first place. <laughs> um, and so um, a lot of people are like, you know, I don't know if I can keep going like with this. So I don't know. And it's like, well, I want to disagree with you, but at the same time, I'm finding it really hard to because, you know, you're not technically wrong. I just don't know if quitting is the right answer, but oh well. But I mean, like we did have, our group took a big hit in terms of participation when it came to like a lot of this virtual meeting stuff, right? Um, Other groups didn't suffer that at all. But you know, though, now that I think about it, maybe that's because... Like, the big feedback we got from parents was like, well, we don't want our kids, like, glued to a screen to do their scouting activities when they're already glued to a screen for a couple of hours a day um, doing their schoolwork, which, fair. Um, But then, like, you know, the groups that I know that had a lot of success moving to, quote, a virtual scouting, unquote, were Ontario-based. And in Ontario, of course, the teachers' union basically clamped down on any kind of online learning uh, delivery, right? So, you know, whereas my daughters routinely had a couple of hours of classwork to do online on any given day, um, you know, students in Ontario might have had like 15 minutes at most. Because the most the teachers could do would be just, you know, send out an email and saying like, well, just make sure they're reading a little bit and here's some math problems. So, fun, fun. Hmm. But so maybe they not being burned out on screen time after a day of schooling were much had much better uptake when it came to, um, you know, than hopping online in the evening to hang out with their friends and beavers and cubs and whatnot. If you want to join the Ultima Dragons, you can do so at udic.org, where you can choose your very own dragon name. You can also find the Ultima Dragons on Facebook. We have a Facebook group there, and you can follow at Ultima Dragons on Twitter or join them on Discord. And if you're feeling really old school, you can even fire up a Telnet client and check out the Wearmount. Hit up the show notes for links to all of these. If you want to participate more directly in the podcast, you can send us an email. Or if you're feeling a little bit braver, leave us a voice message in one of three places, the podcast website, our Facebook page, or on anchor.fm. And you're also welcome to join us on our Discord server to chat with us, to lurk, or even contribute to podcast recordings when they happen. And again, links in the show notes. If you'd like to support Spam 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 Humbug, you can do so at patreon.com slash ultimacodex, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to episodes the day before they go live to the general public. You'll also get access to behind-the-scenes audio when we have some to share, and possibly other interesting content. 
but we also welcome your moral support. You can like the Ultima series on Facebook, follow at Ultima Codex on Twitter, or leave the podcast a review on iTunes. And you're also welcome to share our episodes with your friends and social media circles. Spam 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 Humbug is a production of the Ultima Codex. You can find show notes online at spamspamspamhumbug.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be virtuous. Virtuous.